F1 drivers are rare beings. There are only 20 of them on the planet, racing wheel-to-wheel to be first. But Formula One team principles are even more exotic. Ten top-tier titans, their race is run off the track and behind the scenes, debating, disputing, ducking and diving to gain an advantage. This razor-toothed, sharp-tongued group is nicknamed the Piranha Club, and its newest member is Aston Martin's Mike Crack. There is a, like a, say, like a played politeness and played colleagueness, you know, that uh, makes you suspicious <laughs> when you enter this club. That is the suspicious part, isn't it? You know, so why, why would they welcome me? And uh, the way they did it makes you, uh, yeah, be very vigilant of what's coming next. I'm Tom Clarkson, and this F1 Beyond the Grid is an insight into life running Formula One's most ambitious team. Mike joined Aston Martin at the start of 2022, chosen by owner Lawrence Stroll to guide the green cars up the grid. He's a racer through and through. Just wait until you hear who he competed with in karting as a kid. And he's determined. The story of how he got his first job with BMW Motorsport tells you that. And as you'll hear, he's also a mentor. He found fantastic methods to mould Felipe Massa in his early years in Formula One at Sauber, and he was there for Sebastian Vettel's very first Grand Prix in 2007. He was so young. I think he was 18 or something like that. You know, you had this young dynamism and friendliness and uh, naivety also a little bit, you know, that was very refreshing. I always think that the champions, they have both. Uh, They have the talent and the work ethic. You know, we are very well aware of what the diamond we have there. Fifteen years on, Crack and Vettel are back together at Aston Martin. With Lance Stroll, ex-McLaren boss Martin Whitmarsh, ambitious owner Lawrence Stroll, hundreds of men and women and a brand new factory close to completion. Mike represents all of them when he wades into battle with his rival team principals. He doesn't sound like a piranha, but he's got what it takes to swim with them. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mike, it is lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. You've had a long career, but let's start talking about the here and now with Aston Martin. You're halfway through your first year with the team. Best result so far is sixth for Vettel in in Baku. How do you sum up progress? Slower than I wanted it. Obviously, we started a bit uh, a bit too far back to where we wanted to start and uh, that um, made it obviously quite difficult when you start a new job uh, full of ambitions and then you uh, you find yourself at the back of the grid it was quite funny uh, we in in Bahrain when uh, I met Andrea Seidel who, who is a long uh, a long colleague of mine that we met uh, at the back of the grid in Bahrain and he said he said to me after all these years look where we have what we have achieved where we come from so yeah no it's uh, we we wanted to start better obviously it's not uh, in in P9 that we want to be after after 11 races but we have also to face reality where the new wrecks caught us out with a few things um, we tried to rectify the car then after that and uh, this is where we are so uh, progress has not been as quick as I wanted What were the expectations pre-season before you ran the car for the first time? To be a re- realistic you have to say we want to do better than the year before uh, we finished last year I think P7 and uh, that was not a, not seen as a good achievement. Um, so you have to do at least better than that. I think we were aiming to do something around P5, 
um, which is now obviously very far from where we are. The Barcelona upgrade promised much, but it appears difficult to extract performance from it. What are the issues? You, you have seen some, some racetracks, uh, say, say we speak after, after Barcelona, yeah? all the tracks that came after Barcelona that were having, say, more low-speed parts, more braking, hairpins, like Baku, like Monaco, like uh, Canada. The car was in, in decent shape, I would say. The tracks with a lot of high-speed parts, like Barcelona, like um, Austria and Silverstone, we really struggled. So uh, you can really identify, you know, the 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 the, the part high speed um, and the high medium speed. I would say we really struggle. Uh, we do the sector analysis and we really see that we we really lack pace in these kind of corners. Come on, let's let's throw some positivity on it. It seems better in the race than over one lap. Is that right? Yeah, I mean the racing is not pure performance. Racing is tire management uh, strategy. And I think we have a very good team there uh, in terms of managing tires, you know, setting tires. You, you see that sometimes we can also do things that others don't. Uh, I think from that point of view, we manage very often to extract maybe a little bit more from than, than what the car is capable of doing. Uh, obviously, also, you, have to, you are in a position that you can also take more risks than others. Uh, and I think at times it, it works out. Now, when the upgrade first appeared, some observers said it looked remarkably like the Red Bull. The FIA investigated and cleared you guys of any wrongdoing. Have the allegations of copying gone away now? I haven't heard anything since, uh, to be honest. There is a comment here or there in the press, um, but it has become quiet. I think it's also related, to be honest, to the performance that is not as it should be or as we want it to be. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, it's, it has become quiet. Was that a stressful period for you as team principal? No, not but not more than than not more than the beginning of the season with the COVID and uh, our Melbourne uh, misfortunes. You know when we when we had both cars being repaired in the garage just before qualifying, so it was not more stressful. It was different, I would say, um, because it's uh, it was um, something that you cannot manage. You do not know what what's, what's going to come next. I mean, uh, we we had anticipated with our our communications people what uh, uh, what could come. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, I think we took the right approach and not, not trying to go into a war of, war of words in the media uh, because we, we had done our job, FIA had done its job and uh, then it's just about reaction. And then obviously if there is some prominent reactions, there is also a lot of people that jump on the same train and, and uh, do the same comments. But I, I think all in all, I think we handled it, it fairly well. Uh, as said, you know, not going into a war of words because that doesn't help anyone. Tell us a little bit more about the job. Which bits do you enjoy the most and, and how different is it to what you've done in the past? It's very different. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, I'm still finding my ways um, because uh, I've not done that job before. Um, there is also not so many, you know, in a normal job, you touch the walls or you touch the the... the the track limiting, the track limits, um, and you quickly know where where you are and what you can do. Uh, here, here is a bit different. You know, you don't really know: can I move further in that area? Can I push it further and further and further? You know, until someone says stop. So, uh, from that point of view, I'm still finding you know uh, the areas where I uh, where I can do more and maybe where also where I should do less. Being an engineer, you always have the risk to go too deep into the technical side and. Uh, mix with with our technical people 
uh, it's very enjoyable part of, of it, obviously, but um, you have to be really careful that you let people do their job. But does the engineer in you, does that help you with your job as team principal? Does it help you understand the shortcomings of the car? Yes, I think so. It helps with, um, with the respect that I have for the technical people and they have for me. I think it helps in making right decisions uh, when you have a certain budget. What is the part that gives us more performance? Um, because you could also say we invest like massively into a subject. Say, say for example, uh, you have a car that is on the weight limit and you invest a lot of money to go f further below to adjust the weight distribution. These are then discussions where you think maybe it is better we invested in something else. And I think the, the background helps in making these decisions and not having to uh, go too long in discussions or have the technical people rolling their eyes when, uh, when talking to me. Maybe they still do it when I leave the, when I leave the office. Um, I remember I Ron Dennis once describing this paddock as a, as a piranha club. Is that your experience of it in terms of working with the other team principals, working with all of the stakeholders in Formula One? Yeah, I think it is. Um, there is a, like, a, say, like a plate politeness and plate colleagueness, you know, that uh, makes you suspicious <laughs> when you enter this club. Have the other team principals been welcoming towards you? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that is the suspicious part, isn't it? <laughs> you know, so why, why would they welcome me? And uh, the way they did uh, uh, makes you, uh, yeah, be very vigilant of what's coming next. Did any of them text you? Do you remember back at Imola when all of the team principals had dinner with Stefano Domenicali, well, all of them except for one, <laughs> you. What happened there? And did anyone sort of text you and go, hey, Mike, where are you? Well, um, when I started, there was one texting, one of, of, the, of, of the nine. Uh, so uh, that was, was quite nice, I felt. And uh, in, in Imola, uh, we, we had an organizational screw up, honestly, because um, I think it was in Melbourne, uh, in one of the meetings where, where, where Stefano said, uh, I'll invite you all for dinner in, in Imola. And I didn't hear anything anymore after that. So I wasn't sure if it was going to happen or not. And then we had um, a Aston Martin program as well, appearance uh, scheduled. And half an hour before the dinner was then, uh, the PA of, of Stefano contacted me. Uh, Can you make it? And I had already a commitment then for, for Aston Martin and, and simply I couldn't do it. So it was not, uh, it was just organizational, a logistics problem, let's, let's call it. Note to self, if it happens again at Imola, always go because Stefano was, he, he grew up in Imola. He knows all the good places I to go. I should know better. Knows, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're right. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, there, there was no bad intention or anything such, you know, we, we just screwed it up and uh, I, I'll make sure that next time I'm, I will be there. So Mike, tell us a little bit about your style, your management style as, as team principal. What, what kind of a boss are you? I think I'm very collaborative. Um, normally, I, I, I first try to monitor and see the characters at, at, at work and also the way things are done and uh, try to encourage people. I see myself as part of the team. And uh, from that point of view, I think everybody, uh, whatever hierarch uh, role he has in the organization, uh, hierarchic, every, every opinion counts and uh, we need to use all the brains we have and uh, I would not say that I'm a, yeah ego shooter or anything like that. How much of your day is spent dealing with today's problems? How much of it is all about tomorrow? I would say half and half. Obviously, w when you see where we are, uh, it is difficult to 
to say spend only half the day on current problems. But if you want to solve it, it's very important to think about tomorrow and uh, maybe also f further than tomorrow. So uh, um, when it comes to how the organization is developing, uh, we have also our, our campus uh, that is uh, in construction. So all these things we need to think about. But I have also very big help from, from Martin uh, for, for that kind of work. So, yeah, I would say 50-50 and um, both are the same enjoyable. That's Martin Whitmarsh, isn't it? The yes. CEO. Do you do you work closer with him or with the team owner, Lawrence Strop? No, definitely. I work closer with Martin. The work with Martin is on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, with Lawrence, it's a, would say rather the, on the weekly, weekly meetings or weekly basis. So from that point of view, clearly meet Martin. How are you finding Lawrence? People tell me he's demanding. I think it's, it's, it's very unfair what, what people are saying. Lawrence is extremely generous. Um, he, he, he puts all, all his heart in this team. And uh, coming once a week, you know, and asking for... Uh, he doesn't do any more than asking for a status and asking where are we at and what is next. And I think that is also uh, sensible and uh, justifiable with, with all, the in, all, all the investment that he did and all the, all the tools that he puts at our disposal. So from that point of view, uh, yes, he's ambitious, uh, but uh, it is not a problem. And you, you read here or there that, you know, Lawrence is deciding everything. He, he, lets, us, he lets us free hand in a lot of things. And uh, to be honest, I admire his patience sometimes. Well, uh, I was going to say, how is he dealing with the current setbacks? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard for him. Uh, he, he's obviously the most exposed of all of us. And uh, he has the partners uh, with our sponsors. And, and, and I think it's very difficult for him as well to explain to these people why we are not where we maybe promised or so that we would be. Um, so I think it's difficult for him. And uh, obviously, he, he, he makes sure that we also understand that it is difficult for him. But it's also difficult for us. So it's, it's up to us to solve this and, and provide better tools, provide more results so that he has an easier time with, uh, with his partners. How different is the pressure applied by someone like Lawrence Stroll compared to the board of a major manufacturer like BMW where you've worked in the past? The pressure is the same. In BMW, you must not fail either. But I would say the pressure is less personal. So you, you will probably not have, you don't have the, the board of directors meeting once a week. Uh, you will rather have it uh, once every three months. They are, I would say, yeah, these big companies, they are much less reactive. So also if you want to change something or if you want to have uh, maybe more budget for one thing and maybe less for something else, that it's much, much, much longer. With Lawrence, uh, it's just a phone call. And that's, that's the good thing about it. So... Um, yeah, I said, you know, the pressure is less personal, but it's also the, the, the inertia that these companies are having. This is also very energy consuming. How would you describe the vibe inside Aston Martin now? Is it the same no-nonsense, thrifty team Silverstone that, that people in Formula One have come to know and love? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I didn't know it before, obviously. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great environment. I mean, they're great people and there's great team spirit. Yeah, we had, a, we had a, a, a big event last Saturday. And when you see the reactions that we have had since, uh, it's just, it's really amazing. So I think it's a very, very good atmosphere to work in. It's a, there is pressure, but despite that, there is a lot of people that have lived the Jordan, the Racing Point uh, days that keep the identity of the team. And we must also try to keep it, uh, the spirit that was, was always there in, in this team and uh, add it with, with the new people. But uh, 
I think people like to work there. And I do as well. <laughs> Good. I'm sure. I always walk into your motorhome and think it's a very happy place. That hasn't changed from, from before. But I think one thing that has changed is the expectation because it's always been a team that perhaps been underfunded in the past and likes to punch above its weight. Whereas now you want to become a heavyweight in Formula One. And I guess that is different pressures, isn't it? Yes, 100% right. Um, and also how to communicate this. You know, we are not uh, anymore there to be part of the 10 teams with uh, one or two very good results per year or maybe five or six. This is the expectation is to be consistently delivering. This is a change of mindset, a change of culture that is not something that you change with like a switch. So uh, I think in all areas with all the people, you know, you have to embark on a, on a transformation mission um, and um, promote and communicate what our new targets are, but also set in place the mechanisms that allow to, to progress. And uh, uh, this is not just by uh, adding budget and money. Uh, it's about adding the, the right people in the right places with the right spirit also, without saying that we don't have these. Yeah, so it's it's more like, you know, trying to identify, you know, where do we need to uh, in, in massively increase uh, our innovation or, or, or part development turnaround or what area do we have to back down and say we need to take a different approach? Do you have all of the key staff members that you need now? I think we do, but that's obviously something that I will need to discuss with uh, CTO, COO, because um, there is always some adjustments that you w want to make. Um, a Formula One team is not a static organization. You know, you have always join us, leave us, and uh, at the same time the regulations are adjusted, financial regulations are adjusted, so... I think you need to consistently monitor where you are in terms of with your organization and how to develop it further, which areas you need to strengthen and which areas you can also downsize. And tell us a little bit about the new factory. When are you going to be in there and how impressive is it? Because I think everyone listening to this will want to know what is it like? Is it going to be the best factory in Formula One? <laughs> I think it will, but it, to... to it's obviously difficult if you do not have a vision of every factory. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just by that it is the latest. Yeah, obviously you you will try to incorporate every lessons that you have learned over the last years, and uh, then also see you know where 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 do we need uh, to make this the best factory. On the other hand, the best factory doesn't help you anything if you don't have the the people that make good cars in the in the best factory. So again, it's something that we have. I said it before, you know, Lawrence provides us with tools. Uh, here, I think it, it's a great tool that he will provide us with. But then it is also down to us to, to, make, to make something successful out of this. And so you're going to have your own wind tunnel on site? Yes, it will be a while before it is ready. But the plan is that uh, we have the wind tunnel on and site. And then a lot more of the car will be manufactured within that factory as well? Yeah, this is correct. So, uh, you know, we have now uh, different units in different locations. And I think from a team dynamics point of view, the new factory will be a game changer because people that are remotely located, you know, they feel less a part of, of the team than the people that are in the main building in Silverstone. And that, that's, that's normal. I'm quite happy if we have all these people on site. Also them, you know, be it in Brackley or be it uh, in, in the remote units in Silverstone, they, they give the same, uh, they give everything. Uh, they are, are working there with all their passion. And... Uh, they might some at, at times not being considered as part of it, just 
by being uh, remotely located. So from that point of view, I'm, I'm really happy that we have all of them together. I think what you just uh, said about um, produce more in-house will be uh, another big, big advantage because you, you are much more in control of, of your own destiny. When do you have parts? Which ones are you doing to do quickly and which ones can you still continue to outsource? So from that point of view, I think uh, it will be will be very good. And then obviously too, you know, the current factory is just exploding, you know, for, it's just not enough space. <laughs> I've been there. When I joined the team or when I was there the first time uh, in the last F1 factory that I remember working in was a sober factory after BMW had enlarged everything. And uh, the first thing I said to Andrew Green at the time was, I realize now how spoiled we were in Switzerland uh, compared to you guys uh, having done the successful work out of uh, essentially really a very small building. Let's talk a little bit about your journey to where we are today because you did do nearly 10 years at Sauber. Just tell us a little bit about how you ended up there. Ah, yeah, when was it? It was 2001 you arrived. I joined in 2001, yeah. It, you will not believe me how I ended up there, so... Shall I still say it? Please. <laughs> and I will believe you. So, yeah, um, I mean, I come from a, my racing family, so I was always racing. Did you do some karting? I did karting myself, yes. Now, come on, were you quick? Don't be modest. Um, there was others quicker. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I managed to do a couple of uh, European levels um, in the early 90s, but then at one point we realized, you know, if you don't have the backing of the of the big Italian factories... Uh, you're not going to go anywhere. So uh, at one point I said, it's maybe better that I go on the other side of the of the pit wall. Who did you race back then? Are there any names that people might recognize? Yeah, um, it was at the time where Jano Turi, uh, Giancarlo Fisichella were uh, at the top. While they were racing in the top 10, I was racing between P30 and P40 on the European level. And that's, that's just not good enough, to be honest. So we decided it is better to not pursue a professional racing career. And uh, yeah, then I did the normal mechanical engineering studies uh, in Germany to, to have the possibility to be uh, to have placements um, in BMW Motorsport. And um, I met Willy Rampf at BMW. Uh, that was in the time he had a, he had a, a break at Sauber um, where he was back in BMW. And, you know, BMW Motorsport was very powertrain. Uh, orientated and I had all these chassis questions so uh, they told me why don't you meet with with, with Willy Rampf and he will probably be able to answer all your questions that's what I did I I, I gave him a call and I said uh, I want to meet you and I want to speak about Formula One and uh, I didn't know him at that time so he was very very friendly and uh, gave me an audience uh, for lunch and then we 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 had this meeting and then we had interestingly we had a couple more after and at one point he says he said to me, I go back. I go back to Switzerland. Do you come with me? And I say, yeah, of course, I come with you. Um, but then it was a bit more complicated. He went back and uh, they, they didn't have any open vacancy. Um, so I really ended up calling him every week uh, for having a job there. To the point where he said, look, I cannot create one for you. You have to be a bit more patient. And I said, okay, I'll call you back next week. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, a year later, it, uh, there, there was, there was a, an, an opening in, uh, in the test team for data analyst. And uh, I had no Formula One experience at the time. So uh, they gave me the chance and uh, I tried to, to, to grab it. So I'm eternally thankful for, to Willy to have allowed me with this opportunity. Uh, we spoke about it actually in Silverstone when he, I saw him, he was there with Williams. 
uh, was 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 quite nice to 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 catch up and recall all that all that time. And then yeah, and then I started there, and then I made my way. And Mike, what a great time to join the team because you had Heidfeld and Kimi Räikkönen as your drivers. Yes. Yes, it was uh, young, ambitious, yeah, dynamic, absolutely. sort of with Kimi. <laughs> yeah, the dynamic was <laughs> in other areas. <laughs> no, it was uh, you know for, for me it was obviously uh, plenty to learn, um, uh, and you, you need a while you know before you see big picture. Uh, you know what is what is important, what matters here, and, and in, at the beginning you just try to do uh, what you're told to try to do as, as best of a job that you can uh, in order to, to play your part in the whole in the whole game. Well, you obviously impressed because very quickly you became a race engineer working with Felipe Massa, a very young Felipe Massa. And if memory serves, he was quick, but mistake prone. Is, is that a fair assessment of how Felipe was when he first came into Formula One? Yes, yes. He was, he was very, very uh, green also. Yeah, like me, actually. You, you, you know, he came there and he had this. He was used to a steering wheel with, with maybe one button, or which was a radio button. Uh, and then he came to F1 with all these buttons, and then with a, with an experienced teammate like Nick, uh, who was very very uh, good in the technical side, in with, with differential control, with launch control, with with all these tools that you had at the time. And Felipe had no clue about it. Yeah, I think he asked me sometimes technical questions where you really saw that he was a pure driver had no not really an understanding of the car which was good also at one point because he concentrated on that and uh, i i confirm what you say he was quick yeah he was very very quick and uh, he made mistakes um uh, and it was our job also to give him the environment where he could develop and maybe take less risk here or there because it was not worth it um I think we had his first Silverstone Grand Prix. I asked him after. Well, you, you will probably remember when he started to rain and he tried again. And, and I think he spun five or six times. And I asked him after, well, how many times did you spin? And he was laughing. He said, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Choose not to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there was, was, was a nice time with, uh, with Felipe. What kind of a race engineer were you? Was it purely technical or were you very strong on the, the, the mentoring side of working with a racing driver? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have so many drivers because uh, I was only for, for two years, so I was only race engineer, and the two years were with Felipe. I really enjoyed working with him and uh, mentoring and trying to, to give him the, this, this extra, you know, trying to keep all the technical bit away from him, you know, and purely concentrate on driving and also on... Uh, on the managing of the car, you know, when you have sense of failures, you know, what, what, what you have to do and all that. And I remember we, 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 we spent some time in, 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 in the gym in Switzerland when he was uh, running or, or cycling and I asked him recoveries, you know, for the switches and all that, you know. So th you have a pit stop there, you have no clutch, what do you do? You know, and all these kind of things while he was exercising. And it gave us a point actually in Silverstone, I think the year after, because we had exactly this situation on the pit stop and he knew immediately what he had to do. So that was very rewarding, actually, you know, that uh, all this work that we have done uh, was paying and gave us a championship point. That's fascinating. Oh, are you a gym fiend yourself? Yeah, I, uh, I'm not, the, the, no, I don't, don't go too much. I, I like sport and I like to exercise and do a lot, uh, but I don't go to the gym because uh, I prefer outdoor, uh, prefer the, the air and the... Uh, the birds. Don't tell me Bayern Munich as well, right? Football. 
Yeah, well, it's a good club, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Seems to me everyone who's worked at BMW. Um, now, look, it was during this time at Sauber when, when BMW came on board that he first worked with Sebastian Vettel when he was the team's test and reserve driver, I think. What were your first impressions of Seb all those years ago? He was so young. Yeah, he was, uh, I think he was 18 or something like that. Uh, but he was, um, you know, you had this young dynamism and friendliness and uh, naivety also a little bit, you know, that was very refreshing uh, because we considered ourselves already as like all foxes of Formula One after just a short time uh, and you have this young boy coming. Uh, so, yeah, that was very refreshing to have him, uh, have him around. But it was also in a, a bit a difficult time because, uh, you know, he was a BMW protégé. So, you know, to find the right balance there, you know, between this pressure, you know, that uh, you have a driver coming more maybe because normally drivers are, are, are coming via the teams and not via the engine supplier or, or the, the, the manufacturer. So that created some, some small pressures, but uh, we handled it well at the end. Was he quick straight away? He wasn't. And this is something that uh, we had a lot of discussions over over uh, many years also. And still now, uh, we had some discussions about it. Uh, he was okay, but he was not like uh, flying straight away. And I think, honestly, I think Sebastian found the trick in his, uh, in his times later uh, with um, Toroso when he left, uh, when he was not with us anymore. Um, I think he, he really, I think Giorgio... Giorgio Scanelli said once, you know, uh, he found the trick how to drive these cars. And from that moment, he was just exploding. So are you saying the raw pace was always there? He just couldn't put it out on... Yes. He, he couldn't extract it? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah, I think he, he uh, maybe it was also a bit our fault that we didn't teach him enough how to drive an F1 car, maybe compared to F3. What he, because you, you will remember, he was also at the time where he drove F3, then World Series, then he, he changed again to, to the Formula 1 car. So he was thrown, thrown uh, into different cars. I don't know if he, if he was maybe lost a bit uh, or he needed to find his references, but I think how to drive an F1 car, really the way he does it now, and he did it uh, when he won all these championships, I think he, he, he found out later when he was not thrown, you know, back and forth. How fascinating. And so his application and his work ethic has helped get him where he is today. He hasn't relied yes. on natural talent. Yeah, I mean, I always think that the champions, they have both. Uh, they have the talent and the work ethic. Um, I think nowadays, you, if you have only half of it, be it F1 or be it football or be it any sport, I, I think you're not going to go far. What is it? Has he still got this notebook? Does he write everything longhand notes about the car is that still a thing yeah he's he yeah 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 he but he's you know uh it's admirable yeah and he serves it should serve as an example to a lot of a lot of people not only formula one drivers but a lot of people that you know after being so successful as he has been to still uh keep that ethic to do proper preparation proper analysis you know just, just trying to to get better out of each situation where you are in how different is the 35-year-old Sebastian to the 18-year-old? We didn't speak about Bees uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> um, no, he, he, he has become much more reflective, uh, obviously, after 15 years. But all of us do. Uh, we are all different people when we are 35 than when we are 20. You see he has a lot of life experience uh, because F1 is also a bit of a booster in terms of aging, I think. But... A large part of, of how he is today is very similar to who he was in the past. But uh, um, now you have also 
different ideas and different opinions, and you see that you have you you discuss with a much more mature person than than uh, back in the days. But we have to also not to forget that we have also 15 years more on the clock than we had at the time. And, and do you look at his data? And are there still moments where you go, how did he do that? How did he do that? He still got it. I mean, this is also what you expect from a top-class driver as he is. Yeah. So uh, we are not surprised. You know, uh, we are more surprised for the rare occasions where he doesn't do it. Yeah. You know, we are very well aware of what the diamond we have there. And um, that is also why I think it's always very unfair. You remember uh, after Melbourne, people talking him into retirement and, and all these kind of things. He, he, he was only 34 years old at that time. So uh, I think there is plenty of years that he can really be successful if he, if he has a car that can do it, which he doesn't have. So I think Formula One quickly biases things towards drivers not performing, uh, which I think is very unfair. Do you think he still loves racing? Oh, yes, he definitely does. And as a result of that, do you think he'll continue with the team? How hopeful are you? I very hope that uh, he stays with us. Um, yeah, the next weeks will tell. Um, I think he, he needs to make up his mind. But, uh, you know, when, he, when you saw him in, in Baku, when you saw him in Canada, you know, as soon as the car was a little bit back there, you know, you saw, this, you saw the fire in his eyes, you know, and you could hear on the radio or in the debriefs, there was again, you know, like total focus. Yeah, something, you know, you, you, when you know him, you hear already how he talks, he's on it. You could see also afterwards, you know, he was, was satisfied with, and you, you, you could really sense that he was enjoying what he was doing. And I hope that uh, he continues doing so. But on the off days, and I'm thinking Austria, for example, how does he deal with that disappointment in qualifying? Very professionally. Uh, he, he knows uh, very well, you know, that uh, after a result like that, the team is down, uh, everybody's down. And it would be so easy for him to come in and be frustrated and uh, make comments that uh, are even more frustrating for everybody because a lot of drivers, they cannot hide their frustration and they, they just release it into the team or into the press even. Sebastian doesn't do that. He's very self-critical. You know, if, if he thinks that he had a part uh, on the result, he, he's not too proud to say. Uh, if he thinks that the car was not where it has to be, he, he says it. But it is always constructive. And uh, this is really a big asset because it is in these moments where you see the real assets that you are, have, uh, you are having with people like that and not in the good times. And how useful is he to you in terms of bigger picture stuff? We've talked about building the team up into a championship contender. He's obviously been there and done that. What kind of advice, if that's the right word, does he give you and Martin and Lawrence? Yeah, we speak openly about it, you know, what we, how we want to develop and what, what are the focus we are putting on. It is not that we, we, we have a, a meeting every day about how the team is developing, but uh, we consult, uh, we discuss it, uh, sometimes a bit more planned, sometimes a bit more loosely. For example, I mean, he knows also some people like Dan who, who joined us a while ago, you know, and uh, uh, they, they have conversations uh, on, on maybe aerodynamic development. Now, Sebastian is not an aerodynamicist, but uh, I think he can really tell quickly what the car needs or what, what the car needs to do, let's say. And I think we have enough specialists that know what that means in terms of 
translating this into technical requirements. That's Dan Fallows, of course, your new technical director. I'm guessing there's quite a lot of, Dan, is there any way we can get the blown diffuser working again? <laughs> God, he was good in that, wasn't he? Back in the, in the Red Bull days. So yeah. he's not only good in that. <laughs> Dan is very good. Um, he's a very sensible person. He knows what he wants. Yeah, it, it's a great asset to have him in the team. All right, now look, while we're talking drivers, we must talk about Lance as well, Lance Stroll. Where would you place him in the pecking order in Formula One? That's very difficult. Um, it's very difficult to, to say that because Lance, we must not forget, also never had a winning car so far in his career. Yeah, so, uh, but he has done exceptional things when conditions allowed. Istanbul, for example, uh, in the wet. Again, you know, for me, Lance is one of the drivers that are very underrated. He's much, much better than people think. He also works much, much harder than people think. Uh, he's very fit and also he's a very polite person, uh, which also a lot of people do not know because they, they do not spend the time or invest the time to, to get to know. But uh, it is easy to put someone like that into a drawer yeah, and say, ah, this is someone that uh, is there because uh, his father allowed him. And it is not true. He's a very good driver. And you see it in, I think you see it when conditions are difficult. Um, because in difficult conditions, you, you often see, you know, who are the good ones and who are maybe not, not, not so strong. And it is interesting that always when it rains, uh, Lance is there. Yeah, so this, this tells us that maybe we should look a bit more uh, in detail than just saying, you know, he, he's there because. How has he benefited being alongside Vettel? I think he, he helped him a lot. I think it's the first time that he has a, a, a multiple winner, a world champion next to him and see you know, how to approach, how, how Sebastian is approaching um, a race weekend or, or the comments that he's making. When Sebastian speaks, Lance is listening, uh, but he's also asking questions because he wants to learn from, from what Sebastian is saying or he asks him, you know, how did you mean that? Or, or, or do you also have this and this feeling? So um, I think he benefits from that. And uh, from that point of view, I think, you know, that is also why Sebastian is not only, you know, himself in number five, but uh, it's an asset for the team and for Lance. Mike, you've worked with so many good drivers. There's one more I want to ask you about, and that is Robert Kubitz. I know that this one. (laughs) (laughs) But also that whole period at BMW Sauber. Um, What sort of a driver was Robert, first of all? The best one I've ever seen. Better than Sebastian Vettel? From a pure talent, I think is is, or how he has a feeling and describing the car, I think is really, really, really strong. What about the accident that he had in Montreal back in 2007? It was a 75G impact. Did that take anything away from him in the cockpit? No, no, not at all. Um, because I think he was not, he- not he- uh, heavily injured. It was my wedding two weeks after and he was dancing there. So uh, <laughs> he was not heavily injured. We, we went to see him uh, straight away after the, the, the accident. We were in the hospital in the evening and he, he was fine. And uh, um, I do not think that he took anything badly away from it in terms of mental strength or whatever. Brilliant racing driver, which brings me on to the 2008 World Championship. Robert won in Montreal exactly one year after his accident. He left that race four points in the lead of the Drivers' World Championship. He thought he had a proper shout at that year's world title. BMW thought otherwise. What did you make of their decision to focus on 2009 and not go for that title? 
you remember that I left. Is there a link? There is a link, yeah. We had worked our way up so hard from 2001 onwards, you know, to become a winning, winning team. And a uh, winning team is maybe wrong because we won one race at the end. Uh, but we were, uh, we were having pole position in Bahrain, I think. We were second, on the second in, in Melbourne. So I think we, we were, say, a podium, a podium uh, team. And uh, it was such a good climb uh, over the years, you know, making progress. I was a bit, say, concerned about the new regulations because 2009 was the introduction of CARES. Uh, uh, it was still very open of uh, mandatory use or not and the power that you will have with it and, and all these, these kind of, of technical detail. I wasn't sure how we're going to cope with it. So we were pushing very, very hard to try to do everything to win this championship and to, to develop the car as much as we could uh, until the end. Uh, but the master plan did not have this included to, to continue working on the 2008 car. And that was, was very, very difficult because, uh, yeah, we, we thought we could do more than we uh, and it could, but that we did in the end. Had you won that championship, do you think BMW would have stayed in Formula One? I think yes. I think they would have stayed. But to be honest, I do not, because I was then not part of it anymore in 2009, the, the reasons why it was pulled out, uh, was it only success or was there other things? I think it was also the financial crisis at the time. So um, I, you would have to ask the, the big players. Before we move on from BMW, I did want to ask you about two other people who you work with at BMW Sauber, Jos Capito, Andreas Seidel. All three of you are now team principals in Formula One. Some coincidence, right? Yeah. Um, what is it about Sauber? Yeah. Well, with Joost, uh, Joost had just left when I came. So uh, Joost was, uh, was not part of it anymore. So, and I don't know him very well. Uh, so it would be unfair to, to discuss that. But I would maybe uh, add two Two, per, two people out of it uh, that are not team principals but that have uh, high roles in other teams uh, which is Loic Serra at Mercedes which was part of our organization at the time and Pierre Vacher who is uh, uh, at Red Bull and together the two of them and Andreas and then a bit also myself we were quite a quite strong combo with several others as well I think now when, when you see how the path or the, the careers that, that all of them have, have, have taken and have pursued you, and you look back into the time, uh, 2005, 6, 7, you understand why we, we managed to, to climb. Yeah, it, was, was, just, it was, was a great combination of people at the time. It's funny, in the 80s, Williams were the, the team that developed engineers that went on to great things in Formula One. And it seems in the, the early 2000s, Sauber was that place. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it was, it was a very, very good environment. There was just, you know, guidance from Willy, but no restrictions or any kind of dictatorship. So we could really develop the, our organization the way we want it. And... Uh, it was very constructive between the individuals that I just mentioned. There were others. We, it's unfair you know, to leave it only on, on, these, in, on these names, but uh, it, was, it was just a very constructive environment and we just moved on at incredible pace. Now, you and Andreas went on to work for big manufacturers, yourself primarily at BMW, Andreas at Porsche, although mm -hmm. you did cross paths yes. for sort of yes. 18 months or so, didn't you, at Porsche. But how has that experience with a big manufacturer helped you in Formula One? You have uh, huge budget restrictions uh, at big manufacturers. Or let's say you have a fixed budget and you have 
not only one project, but many. Yeah. So uh, at, at BMW, as an example, we had uh, a GT4 car, a GT3, uh, a GTE, a DTM, and Formula E to do with with a certain amount of people, much less and than you the Formula were across all of that. Yeah, I was supervising all of them. Um, you you need to really allocate the people and the money to the different projects and you will obviously not have enough people and not enough money for the individual project. So it's, it's identifying, you know, what I have to do, uh, which people and which budget I allocate to the different projects for them to do, to be reasonably successful. I think that's something that, that is a big difference between manufacturer, motorsport and Formula One. And do you think that's helped you get up to speed so quickly in Formula One? I always think of maybe what you two have been through as the equivalent of Michael Schumacher in the Mercedes junior team driving those big horsepower uh, sports cars and he was ready to go when he got in that Jordan in 91. Do you feel it's the same for you but in a this side of the fence? If you yeah, like? you, 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 you know, everything that you have now, you know, comms, uh, commercial, sponsorship, uh, technical, uh, finance, you have it in, in different strength um, but you cover everything. Yeah, so you cover all the fields uh, when you work uh, in that role as, as a big manufacturer. In F1, it's just amplified everything. Yeah, everything is just amplified. You just have so many more people. At BMW, we had 200 people for all these projects, and now we speak about a multitude of these. So it's clear that you, you, you cannot go into that detail. So, Mike, in summary, you're learning fast in what is year two of... Lawrence's five-year plan for Aston Martin to be challenging for the World Championship. Are you still on course? All depends on how quick your car is. Everything else, reliability, quality of the race team, quality of manufacture. F1 is such a, on such a high level, you cannot make a difference anymore with that. So the, the, the main difference you do with how the car rolls out of the factory in March or in, in February and after this, there is only a limited amount of development that you can do. You can turn it around, but it is very hard to turn it around uh, because we have so many races. We have Budget Cup now as well. So I think as soon as we have a quick car, we are very quickly on target. And if not, it's going to stay difficult. And you personally, do you see yourself with the team in the long term? Is it, is it a five-year plan for you? To be honest, I have not set any any plans for myself. I was very honoured to be asked to do this. I think it's a huge challenge. Um, I think I am not even seeing how big the the whole thing is that we are with what that we are doing here. So uh, I had a humble approach to the whole thing. You know that well knowing that this is a big a big task for all of us. I do not want to put myself there under any kind of time constraint or time pressure uh, because it will always come different <laughs> anyway to how you plan it. So uh, I I plan now in a way that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if I stay one year, two years or ten. It's not only about me. It's the whole organization. It's the whole team. And uh, that is much more important that we get this on the line than uh, how long I'll be part of it. But I have no intention to, to leave, <laughs> if that is your question. <laughs> well, look, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time and best of luck with everything going forward. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed sitting down with Mike and I came away very impressed. He's a clear thinker, he's straight talking and he really understands motorsport. 
Aston Martin is in safe hands. All the team needs now is time. Mike, thanks very much for your time. It was great to chat. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Mike. Did you race against him in karting or have you worked with him at BMW or Porsche? Let me know your thoughts and I'll read out a selection at the end of next week's show. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Mark Seurer after last week. What an incredible story that man has to tell. Let's start with this from Craig. Great interview with Mark Seurer, who holds a special place in my memory. At Adelaide in 1985, his number eight Brabham BT54 was the first F1 car I saw in action. Even after 37 years, I still clearly remember walking through the gates and seeing him under brakes on Wakefield Road. That's a great story, Craig. And you're right about the impression made on you by the first F1 car you see. You never forget it, do you? For me, it was René Arnoux's Ferrari at Silverstone in 1983. Incredibly fast through Beckett's. That's the abiding memory. And what about this from Anil Bedi? Oh my goodness, what an incredible interview with Mark Seurer. Simply incredible from first words to last. I've always loved Mark as a driver and never understood why he was in such slow Formula One cars. Simply unmissable. Well, that's a very kind message. Thank you, Anil. And I hope you now understand why he never got the brakes he deserved. It was primarily down to his broken bones. And let's end with this from Mayo is Glue. Your chat with Mark Seurer is amazing. It's so inspiring to hear his story, as well as being able to hear how horses brought him happiness in his life. His rally crash had me in tears. That was so scary. Thank you for the range of emotions. It's the best episode yet. Well, thank you, Mayo. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. And Mark's story really is incredible. And you're right about the horses. He now runs a yard with 10 horses in it, which no doubt keeps him busy. We'll leave it there for this week. Thank you as ever for your messages. I read them all. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Mike Crack. And one final thought, Mike mentioned Robert Kubitzer, Felipe Massa, Lance and Lawrence Stroll, and of course, Sebastian Vettel. We have interviews with all of them in the F1 Beyond the Grid archive, and you'll find links to those episodes in the description for this one. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.